1: all the time that I spent with my grandmother as a kid, and I think back on it a lot as I get older. I'm surprised that I didn't spend many nights at her apartment. Instead, whenever I spent time with her, she was at our place. The whole time, though, she did maintain a place of her own, even if she didn't spend a ton of time there. The times I did spend there I think she was a bit uncomfortable, I think she liked her private space, and she liked to maintain that as her private space, something I can appreciate as an adult. I remember one time I stayed over there, and it was very exciting, because it was the weekend that she had gotten a VCR finally, and one of my tasks was to help her set it up and record her favorite shows, something I really enjoyed doing, so it was not much of a problem. She lived in this apartment complex that overlooked New York City, really great place, and Her living room had a beautiful view of the skyline, and I can still picture her sitting there eating her ice cream, drinking her coffee, smoking her cigarettes, and watching this way too small television. Underneath the building, there was a little store, and I don't think whenever I visited with my family we ever went there, but when I was there alone with her, she would go down there to pick up odds and ends. They also had a few videos that could be rented. So when she gets this VCR, I'm excited and tell her, We should rent a video from downstairs. She rubs her head. I think she thought that was going to be a real headache, and I guess it was, because she had to fill out a form, and then she had to sit through me picking out a movie. The movie that we eventually agreed on was Steven Spielberg's 1941. I had seen it once before, and I really thought it was funny, and I talked her into it because I said it was a war film set during World War II. We got it that afternoon... We waited till that night. She made me a big bowl of vanilla ice cream. We sat on the couch and watched it. I was laughing my head off. She did not love it. The next day, we woke up and we would go across the street to this park to walk her dog around this lake. And I asked her why she didn't enjoy the film. And she said, ah, the humor was a little crass for her. But she did like one part of it. She really liked the dance scenes. And I really enjoyed the dance scenes as well. So I kind of pushed her on it. And it turns out that she herself had gone dancing a lot when she was younger, dancing those very dances that we saw in the movie. As we walked around the lake, she was telling me stories of all these places she would go to in Manhattan, the Roseland Ballroom, places like that, and later in life, I would go to those places myself. And from what my grandmother described, I was not as graceful as my grandfather was when he danced, but what I lacked in style, I made up for in enthusiasm. Because of that conversation, and because of this new perception of my grandmother, whenever I watch 1941, I can't help but think of her. And when I see people dancing, swing dancing, I think of her. It was her enthusiasm for that style of dance that pushed me to want to learn about it. And I'm very glad that at one point in my living history, that form of dance actually made a comeback. It was a strange time, but to have that in your back pocket wasn't a bad thing at the time. So on today's show, we're going to talk about the movie 1941. We'll talk about the talented people behind it and the talented people in it. We'll talk about its release, its reception. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us. So without further ado, let's start the show. 1941 is a 1979 comedy directed by the great Steven Spielberg. It was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, based on a story by Zemeckis, Gale, and John Milius of Dirty Harry and Conan the Barbarian fame. The film is packed with stars rising and people at the top of their game at the time, and it is loosely based around the great Los Angeles air raid of 1942 and the shelling of an oil refinery near Santa Barbara by a Japanese sub during World War II. Throughout the film, there are other historical references, including the very famous Zutsu riots. So this film is written by Zemeckis and Gale. Robert Zemeckis, writer, director, who worked on Back to the Future, who framed Roger Rabbit, a whole bunch of stuff. Bob Gale is a regular partner of his. He worked on the Back to the Future films. I'm not actually sure where the John Milius stuff comes in. He is credited with a story by, but I'm glad it was because he always brings something interesting to whatever film he's a part of, be it Apocalypse Now or Conan the Barbarian. Fun little fact that I learned about Milius recently is that the character of Walter Sobchak in The Big Lebowski is based on him. The film was directed by Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, you might have heard of, kind of a big deal. Some other great, talented people worked on it, including A.D. Flowers, who was a special effects whiz. This would be his last project, and if you look at the film without any of the plot and acting and all that other stuff, just look at the special effects. They are really impressive, very high-end, because that is what A.D. Flowers brought to the table. From what I've seen in interviews and heard, the film seemed to be a bit crazy, and Steven Spielberg just kept shooting. In the end, he would shoot over 1 million feet of film over 247 shooting days. That is a lot of film. And we'll talk a little bit about the editing of the film and the release version that we would see later on versus what we can get on DVD. If you have not seen the film, there's an interesting story that Steven Spielberg tells in a documentary about Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick saw 1941 and liked it, but he said it shouldn't have been marketed as a comedy. Instead, it should have been marketed as a drama. I don't know if that would have flown, but after hearing that and watching the movie again, I could see how if they had sold it as a drama with sort of comic elements to it, it would have been a very interesting marketing campaign. And probably people's reaction to the film would have been very different. It's hard to understand people's expectations, but... Since the film had such high expectations as a comedy that had really big stars, and we're talking John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd at the start of their game, I think taking it out of the realm of comedy might have tempered expectation, and maybe the film would have been received better. After these messages, we'll be right back.
0: Surprise when you realize, wow, well, some difference. Reese's peanut butter flavors inside. Reese's
1: pieces. Reese's pieces. They look familiar, but inside this candy shell is Reese's peanut butter flavor. Reese's pieces. Well,
0: imagine your surprise when you realize, wow, Reese's peanut butter flavors
1: inside. Reese's pieces. Wow, some difference. You've
0: got no better you got the look that's all together working playing stay on eye Jordan Ash has that
1: Jordan Available at Bullocks and now back to the show Before I go into the plot of the film, I want to talk a little bit about the cast, and normally when I talk about a film, I will talk a lot about the cast, but this movie has a gigantic cast, so I'm just going to talk about a couple of the characters, maybe say who they are and what character they played. I don't want to go through all of them, or we would be here all day. You had Dan Aykroyd in the film playing Sergeant Frank Tree. Also in this movie is his buddy in real life and on TV and film, John Belushi, who played Captain Wild Bill Kelso. Kelso was originally a very minor character in the film, but once they landed John Belushi for the role, they expanded the role for him. They would also do this for another character, Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens was cast as Hollis Hollywood. Once they got him involved, they expanded that role. Rightfully so, Slim Pickens is a great character actor. All you have to do is watch Blazing Saddles. He constantly cracks me up. And him and that Japanese submarine in this movie are some of the funniest parts. Real silly. Also in the cast, you had Ned Beatty as Ward Douglas, Lauren Gray as Joan Douglas, Murray Hamilton as Claude Crum, Eddie Deason as Herbie Kaslimski. The dialogue between those two characters, Claude and Herbie, was supposed to be the equivalent of what you would get from Jackie Gleason and Art Carney in The Honeymooners. And from what I've read, the roles were offered to those actors, but it was Gleason who passed on it. Christopher Lee played German Captain Wolfgang von Kleinschmidt. Tim Matheson played Captain Loomis Burkhead. Toshira Mifune played Captain Akira Mitamura. He is an incredibly intense actor, does not appear often outside of Japanese cinema, my first exposure to him was in 1941. Robert Stack played Major General Joseph W. Stilwell. That role was offered to Charlton Heston and John Wayne. John Wayne at the time was ailing with cancer, very sick, but he took his time to call Steven Spielberg and told him not to do the movie. He said the film was unpatriotic and that it would not work well. Spielberg ignored him. Then Heston turned him down for the same reasons, and finally Robert Stack took the role, and I think did a really good job. The film also has Treat Williams, Nancy Allen, Diane Kay, Wendy Jo Sperber, John Candy, Patty LuPone, Michael McKean, a cameo by John Landis, Mickey Rourke in his future film debut, and Joe Flaherty, amongst many others. I could go on for probably another 10 minutes on this. Usually in film, one director is enough, There are seven people who would go on to become directors who were involved in the making of this film. Robert Zemeckis, Bob Gale, John Milius, Steven Spielberg, Brian De Palma, who did some gag work from the film. John Landis had a cameo, as did Samuel Fuller. So, seven directors, one film. Today's show is brought to you by a local home builder. House wrecked by an anti-aircraft weapon? Replace it with a brand new home.
0: For the, livables,
1: the all-new concept in Gotta love those new homes. So this movie has a lot of star power in front and behind the camera. It also has a really fun plot. It takes place in 1941, right before Christmas, and a Japanese sub has surfaced right off the coast of California, and they are here to do some damage. Meanwhile, we're introduced to Captain Wild Bill Kelso, who we learn right away is a bit of a wild gun. He lands his Curtis P-40 in Death Valley to go refill at the local gas station, and while leaving, accidentally blows it up. The Japanese are trying to decide on a target, but their compass is broken, So they send a landing party to shore and they capture Hollis, Hollywood, Slim Pickens. We meet many military people, including General Stilwell, who's trying to take the night off to go see Dumbo. There's a dance going on and the daughter of Ned Beatty's character is there and she likes this guy who's a zoot suitor, but this other guy played by Treat Williams is a big jerk and this big riot breaks out amongst the different branches of the service and the zoot suitors. All things start going crazy. Meanwhile, Claude and Herbie are on top of a ferris wheel and he has a dummy with him and he's doing sort of ventriloquist stuff and the Japanese see the lights and you know what? I'm telling you this plot and I'm realizing that this is a very difficult plot to explain because there is a lot going on. This movie is jammed packed with stuff and now I'm starting to maybe think I understand why the film might not have done as well as everybody thought it was going to do. Huh. Let me just jump to a spoiler. At the very end, Ned Beatty, who has had this anti-aircraft weapon installed at his house, tries to fire at the Japanese submarine and destroys his own house. At the end, Wild Bill Kelso has gotten out to the sub somehow and crazily tries to take it over. It's screwball, zaniness, odd. There are actually two different versions of this film. There is the release version of the film. Originally, the film was two and a half hours long. Columbia Pictures and Universal Studios, who were both investors, thought it was way too long. So the original theatrical release was edited down to just two hours. This was not what Spielberg wanted. Later, after releases of the extended cut of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Spielberg was given permission to create an extended cut of 1941 that would have been his original director's version. This would be shown on ABC one time and later on the Disney Channel and would be later released on Laserdisc, VHS, and DVD. I have seen that version more times than I now think I have seen the original it feels a little long for a comedy at times, but it does make more sense, and there's a lot more fun stuff in the film. It's kind of good to watch both of them when you have it in mind, to see what the people who originally saw it missed out on. I mean, this is not a small amount. This is 118 minutes versus 146 minutes. When they were trying to sell this film, they had a trailer that was specifically made To promote the film, it's a little long, but it's kind of fun because it is all original and it has original music by John Williams in it, who would do the soundtrack. So let's have a listen to the silliness.
0: The year is 1941, the place, a deserted airstrip, where a message is about to be delivered to the people of the United States by the one man capable of igniting fire in the heart of the American bosom. Wild Wayne Council. How did you get, Wild Wayne? Five. Confirm? Well, two maybe. Hey, sailor. Want to help your country? Yeah, you out there. You in the audience. Why don't you enlist? Today, right now. Forget about the fitting of your new zoot suit with a dance on Friday night, or that strawberry blonde with a permanent wave country needs you, son. You gonna let her down? You think your best girl will look good in a kimono, eating teriyaki off a straw place, Matt? Here you go, out, Wayne. I'd like to eat sauerkraut for the rest of your life. I'd like to drive to work one morning. Look out. And the street signs will be written in Japanese! Ah! Hey, men. we need you. New dames out there. There's plenty of stuff for you, broad like you to do too, like rigging warheads, embroidering bombing patterns, dancing with desperate dog faces at the US owns. I'm not saying it's gonna be easy. I'm saying we got a great country here. We gotta keep it that way. Captain Wild Wayne Kelso. United States Army Air Corps. I'm saying to each and every one of you. So long, mama. I'm off to Yokohama. This Christmas, Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures proudly prepares you for next Christmas. Steven Spielberg presents 1941, the night the rising sun fell on Hollywood.
1: Did you notice that when he introduces himself, he's Wild Wayne Kelso? That was the original name for the character, and they switched it to Bill in the film. But in that original trailer, which you see, he's still Wild Wayne. Just a fun little weirdness. I wondered if it had anything to do with John Wayne backing out and maybe not wanting to anger him or maybe because he had passed away just not sure as i said the music for the film was scored by john williams and it has a great march in the film it's used throughout steven spielberg has said that it is his favorite of all the john williams's marches i don't know if he could judge this right because the imperial march from star wars is pretty good another fun thing about the soundtrack is that it includes swing music like swing 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 a sound alike version of glenn miller's in the mood and two songs by the Andrew sisters. If you have the DVD version of the film, they have isolated music channels that have additional cues that weren't heard on the first soundtrack release, which was really cool, but then in 2011, a expanded soundtrack with the complete John Williams score was released, including those never-before-heard alternate cues, along with source music, and a remastered version of the original album. That's a good soundtrack to own. After these messages... We'll be right back. You've got friends to share the good times. You know things are going right. And when you're hot and thirsty, you know it's time for Sprite. And you know limon is the secret of Sprite. Lyman is the secret of Sprite. Sprite takes the cool taste of limes and lemons to give your thirst the refreshing taste of lime secret of
0: Sprite. You get the same great taste of Lyman in sugar-free Sprite, too. We could tell you that Pioneer's PL518 probably offers today's best value in a direct drive turntable. We could tell you its tone arm rides on ten times the conventional number of ball bearings for smoother tracking, or that its direct drive motor all but eliminates wow and flutter. But nothing we tell you will be as convincing as this. Pioneer, we bring it back alive.
1: And now, back to the show. The film was released on December 14th, 1979. It cost $32 million and eventually, after a while, would go on to make $94.8 million dollars. Now that is a box office success, but this is Steven Spielberg, and everybody's expectations were super high, so when compared to other films that he has done, it is considered a flop. In my book, it is not a flop. It made money. It might not be the best film, but it's got a lot of great stuff in it, and if you're young and you can overlook a lot of the criticism, it's a great film to have on HBO, and When I had cable television back then and was able to watch this, I watched it whenever it was on. Because you don't get to see this much talent in one place in a movie very often. The film was regarded as such a flop that when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, they were listing all of Steven Spielberg's previous films to show that he had directed all this great stuff. The one they left off was 1941. For a film that flopped, it was nominated for three Academy Awards in 1980. One for visual effects, one for best cinematography, and one for best sound. Sadly, no one won. I watched 1941 so often that it's hard for me to even think that it's sort of an overlooked film because I'm so familiar with it. Although when I was trying to talk about what the film was about, I found it actually difficult to do. So maybe the reason that people aren't watching it as much as they should is because when people try to tell them what it's about or try to explain why they like it, they get as tongue-tied as I was. If you like zany comedies, if you like wacky premises, if you like the music of the 1940s and films set in World War II, then you'll like 1941. Not a ton of World War II comedies were made after the war was over. I know they made some during the war to lighten the mood. It was such an important part of American history. It is odd that there wasn't because, as you can see from this film, there was chaos and confusion, and you can either dramatize that or... Bring it to light by making fun of it. So put on your spectator shoes, pop on your zoot suit, and this weekend, why not fire up 1941? Push the couch back, and during those dance scenes, cut a rug. Just make sure to keep your eyes on that screen, because you're not going to want to miss a moment of that dance scene. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com retroist.com and twitter.com retroist. The music you hear on the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. There's this great deleted scene that you might recognize from Raiders of the Lost Ark where Slim Pickens was going to be tortured and it turns out it's a coat hanger. And then, what was I talking about? This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.